Hey, good morning, 11 o'clock. How you doing? Hey, you did it. You survived Easter, spring break, ski week, whatever. These last couple of weeks, finals, midterms, whatever you had, you're alive and you're here. And we're glad you're joining us this morning. My name is Dre. I'm one of the pastors here. And a funny thing in my life, two weeks ago today, my gladiator of a wife gave birth to our third born. And so as... As the proud dad, you want to see a picture? You want to see a picture? So up there, it's, it's just me right now, but oh, well, he looks a lot like me. So kind of, hey, hey, I like that you're clapping. He's actually cute. Oh my gosh. He's not one of those. That's Isaiah Lionel. That's our second son, third in total. And everybody's healthy and happy. And I know what you're thinking. And yes, we do make really good looking babies, don't we? <laughs> and there's something about having a newborn where you're like, God, God, thank you for coffee. Because I don't know how we would be surviving without it, but we're excited about him. But hey, as you came in, uh, you were given a program. If you open up that program inside, there's a message note sheet. That's going to be a great tool to help you follow along. Um, We're going to have some fun this morning. So I'm going to pray and we're going to jump right in. Father, as we were singing that, we will exalt you. To exalt you is another way of saying that we will worship Jesus. And we have infinite reasons why why Jesus is worthy of our worship. Jesus, you are good, you are creator, you are all-powerful, you are forgiver, you broke the bondage that sin had created, you resurrected us, Father. Even just a week ago, as we gathered here and we celebrated your triumph, Jesus, we thank you that all those things are not just true for one time a year, but they're true for eternity. We pray as we open up your word this morning, Lord, your word which is living and active, We pray that whatever image, however we viewed you coming in, that we walk out of here with a bigger impression of who God is. I pray that I, as a communicator, become less, and I pray that you, as the King of Kings, as Messiah, become much, much more. Speak to us this morning, Father. That's our prayer. In your Son's name, we all said loudly, amen. Awesome. Well, if you're joining us for the first time this morning, let me take a few minutes to do a previously at the Church of Rocky Peak to bring you up to speed in the series we've been in. A few weeks ago, we kicked off a new series called Sent Into the Danger. Now, this is actually our second series in one of the longest books in the New Testament, the book of Acts. Now, Acts is the second book written by a Gentile doctor named Luke, the gospel of Luke being his first one. And in the first series, we focused on Luke's account of how the early movement of Jesus began, how it started in Jerusalem with just a few hundred believers, and through the work of the Holy Spirit, how this movement expanded to tens and thousands of believers. Now, with expansion such as that, it also brought some heavy persecution from the religious leaders at the time. If you were with us over the last couple of weeks through this series, we were introduced to one of these leaders, Stephen, who gave a great testimony of, who, of Jesus as Messiah, but Stephen's faith, Stephen's testimony led to his death. And so this morning, we're going to be picking up immediately after that, that Stephen's death was the catalyst for a new level of intensity of persecution in the church that resulted in the church being scattered throughout the region of Israel. Now, what we're going to be doing this morning is we're going to be following another of these leaders named Philip. Philip was introduced with Stephen back in chapter 6, and Philip is part of this new waves of, wave of leaders that Luke is focusing on that's going to be leading to the conversion of Saul into Paul. So if you've got your note sheet there, you've got a section titled Expansion Through Persecution. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be opening up to Acts chapter 8. Now, at the beginning of chapter 8, what I want to do is just briefly recap those first three verses to understand the context of where we're about to jump in, to understand the, the, the life of the church at this moment. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. 
And so what we see heading into our scripture today is a very dire picture for the early church, right? Now, with that context, let's, let's read Philip's account. Verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Now, let's stop there and unpack because there's a few extraordinary things in just those two verses. The first thing I'd like you to do is if you look at verse 4, if you have your Bible and a pen, if you have an app capable of highlighting, would you highlight verse 4? In fact, would you put boxes, arrows, stars, flames around it, something that brings your attention to it? I even wrote it out in your note sheet for later, but I want you to have this in your Bible because what do we see? The church of Jerusalem had been growing, had been healthy. They at one time had the favor of the people. And we could say honestly that right now because of persecution, everything had fallen apart for them. They were scattered, running for their lives because of their faith. And what do we see in the everyday, for lack of a better term, ordinary believers? That they didn't abandon Jesus. That not only they didn't abandon, but in the midst of this intense hardship, they continued spreading the word that Jesus is Messiah. And what we see is that to the early church, Jesus was not a temporary mountaintop emotional experience. But he was, so, he was the Messiah that changed their core identity. When they had nothing left, they had Jesus. And what I love about this truth is that through persecution, the enemy meant to destroy the church. What did he end up doing instead? He spread the reach of the church. And so we see that. That's the first extraordinary thing. And the second is that Philip goes to the region of Samaria. Now, at this point in history, Israel's history, Israel is broken up into three core regions. Galilee in the north, in the south is Judea, and in the middle is Samaria, where the Samaritans live. Now, to understand why Philip preaching the word of Jesus in Samaria is a big deal, we need to understand what the state of race relations between Jews and Samaritans were at the time. And these were very tense, hostile race relations. So to best understand that context, let's kind of digress a little bit and get a little bit of history between the Jews and the Samaritans. Back in 722 BC, the region of Samaria was conquered by the Assyrian Empire. What the Assyrians did is that they took the majority of the Jews in that region captive, leaving behind a small contingent of the poorest of the poor. That area was then resettled by foreigners, and those foreigners intermarried with the remaining Jews. What that ended up creating was a mixed Jewish race that became known as the Samaritans. Now, that was, the, that was a problem to the Jews, because the Jews viewed themselves as pure, and they viewed the Samaritans as being defiled by pagans and foreigners. And so the Jews did not have a high impression of the Samaritans at all. In fact, to many of these early Jewish believers, when they hear Jesus preaching about the salvation of the world, they likely didn't mean for that to be the world outside of Judaism. So they probably didn't view the Samaritans as in that salvatory plan. In fact, if you were a Jew, you viewed Samaritans as you would Gentiles, non-Jewish people, meaning there were strict rules against the type of contact and interaction you could have with Samaritans, and they weren't even allowed inside the temple. In fact, the Samaritans had such a hard time with what they perceived as the arrogance of the Jewish nation that they erected their own temple in their land. So I'm not, be, I'm not exaggerating when I say that these people groups hated each other. Very much so. In fact, in Luke's original work in his gospel in season one, as Michael puts it, there was a time in chapter nine when a Samaritan village did not welcome Jesus and did not treat him and his disciples well. And the disciple John asked Jesus, do you want us to pray for fire from heaven to destroy this village? So you see that even walking with Jesus didn't immediately change their view on this racial relation. Yet Jesus always had a much bigger view of his creation. And even though in the Gospels he primarily ministered to the Jewish nation, 
What we see is that Jesus began setting the groundwork for the Samaritans and the Gentiles to eventually come under his salvation. In his Gospels, he very famously shared the truth of the Lord, of the Lord's salvation to a Samaritan woman. Jesus, in in Luke's Gospel, excuse me, he writes a parable of Jesus called the Good Samaritan, where a Samaritan is the good guy, the hero in this account. In fact, in the beginning of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, in Jesus' final words to his followers before he ascended into heaven, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all of Judea, and Samaria. And so we see Jesus' heart for the Samaritans all along. And so this is a big deal. And so let's see how the Samaritans responded to the message. In verse 6, When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirit for with shrieks, impure spirits came out, and many and of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. So what's happening is that Philip is teaching that Jesus is the risen Messiah. And when it says that they paid close attention, that loses a little something in the translation. What that means is that they believed. They believed the gospel. They believed that Jesus is our forgiver. They believed that Jesus is our restorer. They believed, and we saw that one, Philip's message, often in Acts, the message, the gospel of Jesus is backed up by signs and wonders. But we also see that the regeneration of Jesus is coming to this place because bondage, both physical and spiritual bondage, is being lifted. And it said that they felt joy, and biblically joy is what comes with salvation. This is incredible. And now we're introduced to a unique character in this account. Verse 9. Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. Now, Different translations refer to Simon as either a sorcerer or a magician, or you have an older translation, a really cool word, Simon the Magus. But when the Bible talks about magic and sorcery, it's not talking about what we may picture today, somebody with a top hat asking you to pick a card. When the Bible is talking about somebody that practices magic or sorcery, the Bible is referring to somebody who is demonically powered. And through that power is able to perform signs and wonders, has powers of some kind. In fact, it's not the first time we've encountered this in the Bible, going even back all the way back to the Exodus, when Moses is before Pharaoh, the the magicians of Egypt were performing these signs and wonders. And so there's a lot of Christian scholars and early apologists that think that this was a that this was Simon that this Simon had a lot of power through those demonic influences. One of the earliest Christian scholars, Justin Martyr, he believed that this was the same Simon that was so powerful that for a time he was worshipped as a god in Rome. Now what we see is that he's been in this region for some time, that they associate his power with being that of God himself. And we see that whatever hold Simon had on these people, it definitely had a spiritual component to it. The enemy had a foothold and a stronghold because of this sorcerer. But what we're going to see is that there is no hold the enemy can have on any one of us that the power of Jesus cannot break. And so as we continue to read... Verse 12, but when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Again, the gospel is changing lives and breaking the bondage of sin and the dark arts. Verse 13, Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Now, that should be a celebratory note, right? The sorcerer who is leading people astray believed and got baptized. But Luke also gives us a bit of a cautionary footnote that's going to come into play later in our scripture that he said he believed, he was baptized, but he followed Philip everywhere, which is a little weird in and of itself. But it also say that as he followed Philip, he was amazed by the signs and wonders that he did. Luke doesn't tell us that he's amazed 
by the work of the Holy Spirit. Or he's amazed at the message of Jesus that Philip is preaching. He's amazed at the power. He's amazed at the stuff. Now, this is going to come into play again later, but as we continue to read in verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. Now, try to emotionally connect with the apostles at this point. Because of the persecution, the life of the church is crazy, to say the least right now, right? And now they're getting the word that this mixed race group of people, these people they had always seen as less than them, are accepting the word of Jesus. And they're probably sitting there going, is this even possible? And so what do they do is they send a team to go see, is this really happening or is the message getting, is message getting lost in the translation? Verse 15, when they... When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they, may, that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And so when Peter and John venture into Samaria and what do they find out? They see that what they heard was true. The Samaritans are coming and they're knowing Jesus as Lord, Jesus as Messiah. And so now what Luke's account does is it raises a really big question, doesn't it? Now, quick tangent on this. When you're reading scripture and you come across something that is confusing or that you have questions about, that is a good thing. You are not doing anything wrong. Asking questions is a very good thing because it gets your gears turning. Luke's account here raises a really big question. If the Samaritans had given their life to Jesus and they had been baptized in that faith, why did they not re receive the Holy Spirit until the apostles came and laid hands on them? Now, there's a couple of different viewpoints on this. There's some people that might think that in the early church, the apostles needed to lay hands to confirm the work of the Holy Spirit, especially when it came to the Samaritans or to the Gentiles. Now, there's another group that hold a view, and there's many people that love Jesus today that hold this view too. And again, I want to be clear about that, that love Jesus and our brothers and sisters that hold this view that that. You give, when you give your life to Jesus, you are saved in him. But you still require what's called a second baptism or a baptism of the Holy Spirit to come upon you to complete the work of maturity or completeness in your life. Now, when a question comes up in Scripture, the best way to try to handle, like try to seek the answers is by looking at the context of Scripture, and so what you start doing then, you start looking at the surrounding areas and expand your picture a little bit. So you start looking at surrounding verses. You start looking at the entire chapter or surrounding chapters, the entire book, the entire New Testament, the entire Bible. And so when we look at the context of Acts and the context of the Bible, it seems that the evidence strongly suggests that, what, that this act was a special one-time only act that signaled a new turning point in the life of the church. Because we don't see this requirement of the apostles or this withholding of the Holy Spirit from other Samaritan and Gentiles believers from this point on. And so, much like Pentecost in Jerusalem was a one-time event that was a turning point in the life of the church, many scholars have referred to this event as the Samaritan Pentecost. And here's... The message it teaches us, if you are a Samaritan believer, you have been raised and have experienced that the Jews hate you. And here are the Jewish apostles laying hands on you, which is an act of friendship and relationship. And they are praying over you. And in those prayers, the same Holy Spirit that they received in Jerusalem is the Holy Spirit that has now come into your life. If you are a Samaritan believer through this Samaritan Pentecost, you now see that you are not less than, you did not get a JV Holy Spirit, but you are equal family with the Jewish believers. But not only did they need to see that, but the Jewish apostles needed to see that too. Again, coming in going, these people have been mixed with pagan blood. They're less than we are. They're not even allowed in the temple. 
And yet here they are hearing them accept the word of God and seeing the same Holy Spirit upon them. It is a message in unity that in the eyes of Jesus, there is beautiful diversity, but that diversity should not be barriers that separate us. Whatever your race, story, background, we are all united through the name of Jesus. And so that's, that's why this act occurred. And so as we continue to read in verse 18, we see Simon's reaction to this. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying of, hands of, uh, at the, laying of, the, of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And so what we're finding out is this event is revealing Simon's true character. And so what we see is Simon didn't, in fact, give his life in total submission to Jesus. He pretty much stayed the same with a Christian sheen on him now. He was intrigued. He did the right things on the outside. But on the inside, he hadn't given his life to Jesus because this request in his way of thinking was a totally normal request. I'm intrigued by the power. A friend of mine put it recently, I'm intrigued by the benefits that come with Jesus, not necessarily Jesus himself. And I'm intrigued by this and I want that. So I want to buy this from you. See, it's interesting because, and I, I don't use, I only use this word to illustrate, not because I believe it, but Simon is one of those biblical, quote, bad guys. But one of the things that always humbles me is when we look at these, quote, again, biblical bad guys, how I can find myself able to relate to them. And I think we can as well that, have you had those times and those struggles in your life when your submission to Jesus was not total? When you held something back? When you said, Jesus, you have 70% of me and that's pretty darn good. But you know what? This sin, this lifestyle choice, this relationship, this way of thinking, this substance, this abuse, whatever it is, I'm going to keep this. This is mine. It makes me think of a conversation my wife had years and years ago with a young lady she was sharing Jesus with. And this young lady's response to her was, you know what? I, I believe in what you're saying. I believe that Jesus is the way to heaven and he forgives us of our sins, but I just don't want to change my life. And that very much seems to be the character that's revealed in Simon. And so as we continue to read in verse 20, we see Peter's response. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart, not just talking about our emotions, but biblically your heart is everything that makes you, you, the control center for your life. Because your heart, because, I lost my place. I feel like Michael now. May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part in this in, in, or no share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Now these are stern words, but they're necessary. Because Peter is calling out a danger when we lack total submission to the Lord. If we lack total submission, we are giving the enemy a foothold in our lives. And if we give him even just a foothold, that's all he needs to destroy us and destroy the church. The message Peter is saying is pretty clear and it's relevant for us as well. I don't care what you look like on the outside. It's what's going on on the inside that matters. Here is Simon that played the part well. He was intrigued by something and believed and was baptized and did all the outer stuff, but it was meaningless because the inside hadn't changed. And Peter is calling him out going, you are giving your heart to the enemy. You're giving your heart to the devil because it is not repentant. It is not in submission to the Lord. And he's saying that's how this works. We give our lives to Jesus in total submission and he makes us brand new. And Simon's response in verse 24, then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. And this is the end of the account of Simon. We don't know what he ended up becoming. There's some that strongly believe that Simon went on and created cults and continued in these dark arts. 
There's some that believe he genuinely ended up coming to faith. We don't know. It's possible that this request of his was genuine. It's possible that as a sorcerer, he was afraid that he upset a higher power and he was afraid of the consequences and that's all he meant. We don't know, but the important thing is the message that Peter is making, the point that Peter is making through this. And then finally, verse 25, after they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. If you remember when we started this series, one of the things Michael had said that sometimes us entering the danger is going to be the Lord taking, taking worldviews we've held for a long time and changing them. And if you think about it, the apostles had a choice to make. They grew up having a certain view of the Samaritans, having the wrong view of the Samaritans, but that was their view. And here Jesus challenged that view and they had a choice to make. Do they continue to retreat back into their small, narrow way of thinking or do they trust in the Lord? And we see that they made the choice to trust in the Lord because on their way back, they lived in this new paradigm that they were stopping in Samaritan villages to tell them the Messiah lives. And this is eventually going, this sets the groundwork for the eventual welcoming of the Gentiles in the church. So it's a pretty awesome section of scripture. So in the time that we have left, what I want to do is I want to go ahead and I want to pull one core principle that comes from the scripture. And I want to look at a couple practical steps for us in our life. So there in your note sheet, you got a section titled the core principle. And your fill in is this, entering the danger creates opportunity. Entering the danger creates opportunity. Now, when you think about entering the danger in your own life, when you think about just those trials, and if I were to ask you, hey, what words would you describe those periods in your life? I'm sure many of us would have the same type of words. Painful, heartbreaking, negative, stressful, trying, exhausting, but I don't think a lot of us, myself included, would necessarily use the word opportunity. And the truth is because opportunity sounds a little too positive for these hardships in my life. And so that's what we see in Scripture is that as Christ followers, Jesus is changing us to have a radical new view of the world and especially a radical new view of those times when we come into the danger. Because often in our life, we believe a lie. And it's a nice sounding lie, but we believe this lie that we will eventually get to a point in life when we will no longer enter the danger. We will get to a point when our ship is no longer being rocked, where nothing is going wrong. I have figured out how to solve everything and I can live quietly and never leave my easy chair. <laughs> but part of this radical new way of thinking is what makes it so radical is by embracing actual truth. And as long as we're on this side of a world that's been ravaged by sin, the danger is unavoidable in different forms. And so what we see now is that the danger does not have to be that which defeats us because we don't enter the danger alone. We enter it with the triumphal Messiah. And so because of Jesus' power, he can open up opportunity in the danger. Hear me very, very clearly. I am not saying that to minimize the pain and heartache we experience in the danger. Trusting in Jesus and loving Jesus in the danger does not mean that we have to put on this fake sugary smile and go, everything's okay because I trust in God. You're allowed to feel what you feel. You're allowed to experience your emotions, but the, but the point of Jesus through opportunity is to know that when you are in the danger, you have not been abandoned nor forsaken by the Christ. He's with you. In fact, in Christianese, you might have heard the phrase, God can make bad out of the good. And that isn't just a cute little saying. The Bible backs that up with evidence. Think about just last weekend. What did we get together to celebrate? We got together to celebrate the darkest day any of us could imagine, that the sinless, almighty Son of God died horribly on a cross. And that darkest day led to our greatest opportunity in salvation. And so within that, there's a lot of different opportunities we find through God in the danger. 
What I'd like to do with the time we have left is just focus on three specific opportunities to grow our individual faith. And these are important because as we grow our individual faith, we strengthen the church as a whole. And so there in your notes, you've got a section titled Three Opportunities. Your first fill-in is the one we're going to focus a lot of time on, so buckle up. The first fill-in is this. Entering the danger reveals our true character. Entering the danger reveals our true character. All right, so I need to have some honest talk with you. I have often found in my life that who I perceive myself to be and who I actually am are two different people. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but can some of you relate to that? Now, that can be true in so many different areas in life, but for our purposes, let's focus on this area of trials and hardships. See, often what happens, what I do, what I think many of us do, is I idealize how I'm going to be, how I'm going to face trials. I sit there and go, man, if I face hardships in life, you know how I'm going to face it? With peace and wisdom and I'm going, to be, I'm going to be quick to listen and slow to speak and jump to conclusions. And I'm going to handle it like an adult. And then what happens when hardship happens? The complete opposite. A great illustration of this, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the American version of The Office with Steve Carell. And uh, I think it's in the third season. There's one of my favorite episodes is a bat gets stuck in the office. And particularly one of the characters, Kelly, she, you know, let's just watch it. Let's just. What are you doing? You better not hurt that little bat. Animals can't feel pain. Don't hurt that bat. It's a living thing with feelings and a family. Flush him towards the door. On my go. Now! Ah! Ah! Kill it! Kill it! Kill it! <laughs> Do you see what I mean? She had these ideals, right? And then in the danger, she showed who she really is. But here's the humbling part. That's me. That's us in the danger. We have these ideals, and then when the danger hits, we're the complete opposite of who we've hoped to be. But here is something that's even more dangerous. We are the complete opposites, but we often don't realize that. Somehow, we think we're still this idealized person. We're judgmental, we're angry, we're quick to violence, whatever that may be. But somehow in our minds, we're interpreting this, that, oh, I'm handling this the way I want to with maturity. And what that points out in the danger, it shows us who we really are, but it also shows that for many of us, myself included, we lack a self-awareness about who we actually are. And hear me on this. We need to gain an accurate self-awareness or else it's going to be increasingly difficult to grow in our faith in Jesus. Because to use one of my favorite metaphors I've used up here many times, it's like trying to use Google Maps. I can't tell it, I can't use it accurately if I'm not honest about where I'm starting. It's the same thing. I can't let the Lord grow me and make me more like him, make me more like the character of Jesus if I'm not honest about where I'm at now. And so as much as I would never wish for myself to go through trials and tribulation, as much as I would never wish that upon any of you, the reality is the opportunity in there is that hardships, the danger is a great tool to reveal who we really are, to reveal our character. Because what we can't lose sight of the fact is that our character isn't built on our actions, but our character is based on our relationship with Jesus. Because what kind of character are we called to have as Christ followers? His. Before we came to know Jesus, we chose our own character. And that led to sin, death, and destruction. To put it bluntly, our character sucked. But now that we are in Jesus, we reflect his beautiful character. And the reason why it's important for us to have a healthy self-awareness 
is that all a self-awareness is, it's that it's looking for anything that would be a roadblock to us becoming more and experiencing more of our king. And there's many dangers too that we saw Peter take Simon to task for that danger. But when we're able to take a look at ourselves honestly, we can identify these roadblocks, these idols, and we can remove them. And one of the biggest dangers for the church that Peter called out in Simon, but that we often see in the New Testament calling out, it's what I would call a church killer is the danger that we face today is that sometimes we need the self-awareness to see that our relationship, our character, is, our character is not in a good place because our relationship with Jesus is lukewarm. It's stale. If we were to give it a letter grade, it's a C at best. And this is what a lukewarm faith looks like. I showed up to church, I go to church every week, not necessarily because I want to, but because my family does it, or it's because of what you're supposed to do. That's a lukewarm faith. A lukewarm faith is I go to church regularly, but you know what, like, it's, it's never in my mind, I never think about praying or talking to God, let alone the Bible. Like, I don't have a high view of the Bible, I don't, you know, I'm not going to make the time, it's boring, I don't want to get into it, but that's okay. That's a lukewarm faith. Lukewarm faith is similar to Simon holding on to something. I have this sin in my life, whether it's an addiction, whether it's a way of thinking, a lifestyle. Again, those, that list we went over. And you know what? Like, I don't want the godly people in my life to know about it. So I'm not going to tell my family. I'm not going to tell my life group. I'm going to hold on to this, and that's okay. An example of that is I'm a really angry person. If you met me, uh, if you met me, you would be miserable because I'm miserable. I yell and I get mad at the drop of a hat. Let alone, look, gosh, if a barista messes up my order, they are going to get it. I'm awful in person. If you cross me, in, even in the smallest way, I will send you the most violently worded email you've ever received in your life or leave you an awful voicemail. My Facebook and my Instagram is just full of hate and anger towards all of this, but maybe I try to claim it's a righteous anger, so that's okay. I am just angry, but I love Jesus. <laughs> and I'm okay with that. Do you see what I mean? We often may not see it, but one of the biggest dangers to the church individually and collectively is a faith that is just lukewarm because it's apathetic. And so what the New Testament regularly reminds us is that if we want to combat a lukewarm faith, we need to know, one, where we are, but two, the way we combat it is not by signing up for a class or doing more things, but by regularly falling in love with the person of Jesus. I love how it's put in your note sheet by uh, Harold Dollar, one of the greatest last names I've ever heard in my life. The most natural tendency in the world is to routinize religious faith to the point of making it innocuous. But the Holy Spirit always calls God's people to revisit this newness. Sometimes this newness is discovered in a new way of looking at an old truth or by rediscovering a truth that has been forgotten. If my character is not reflecting the character of Jesus, it's likely because my faith has gone stale. And so what I need if I want to grow out of that is I need, a set, I need a set of eyes outside of me to help me see that. I need eyes that love me and care for me as an individual, as a follower of Jesus, that are going to encourage me, that are willing to enter the danger and tell me the tough things I don't want to hear, but that are good for me so that I can grow past that. And so practically, what does that look like? There's two core, er there's two core uh, areas we can live this out. The first one is, well, both of them fall under the banner. We need another set of eyes. So the first person, first and foremost, we need to be our set of eyes is Jesus himself. And this happens through a series of simple prayers. One, going before the Lord and just asking, Father, is there something about my character you want to bring to my attention? Is there something in my life that I don't see? Because like in driving a car, I have blind spots. Because remember, one, no one knows you better than your creator. And two, no one is rooting for you harder than Jesus. And so he doesn't bring these things up in your life because he wants to mock you or wag a finger in your face and go, look at how you're disappointing me. He brings up these art truths because he says, yes, this is where we're at, but I am here to make you so much more. 
Maybe the prayer is to sit before the Lord and just recount an average day. Sit there and go, Father, like, this is the interactions, the conversations I had with work, or I had with my spouse, or my kids, or with this person, or at school, or wherever it may be. Is there anything you want to show me about these areas or these accounts? So first and foremost, regularly, and here's a key note about regularly, don't wait until there's a catastrophe. Let's be a people that are proactive rather than reactive. That's the first step. The second step to get a great set of eyes is to allow godly men and women the permission to speak into your life. By developing relationships, whether they're Christ-loving family members, friends, leaders, whoever it may be, but people that will get to share life with you, but you are giving them permission. Hey, if you see something, I need you to call me on my, ba- on my blind spots. In fact, one of the best ways to do this is set up on the patio right now by getting in a life group. I'm telling you, as a fellow brother in the Lord, I need my life group. I need these men and women who are for me to be able to see my blind spots because in my head, I think I'm awesome at everything. (laughs) And I need godly men and women to go, no, you're not. Because if I don't have that, how am I going to grow? I think... I think of this example early in my marriage. I remember my wife and I were in a conflict and she called me out and she told me, you know, first of all, to understand, I'm an introvert and a thinker by nature. And so what that means is 95% of the time I'm in my head. And so she told me, she's like, you know, you make these decisions for our family and I want to be on board. I want to support those decisions, but I have no idea how you got from point A to point B because you're doing it all in your head. And she told me that, and as a mature adult, my response was, no, I don't. (laughs) And so just a few days later, I was together with a good set of guys that were accountability in my life. And I brought, we were praying for each other, and I brought it up, hey, my wife says I do this, is this true? And without missing a beat, oh yeah, that's totally you. (laughs) And it was crazy because I had no idea And if I didn't have these people in my life willing to enter that danger, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to grow. We need that accountability from Jesus and from one another as family. So that leads to our second fill-in. Entering the danger deepens our trust. Entering the danger deepens our trust. Have you ever watched a movie where one of the characters is in danger and they start praying and they kind of do that stereotypical movie prayer, God, if you get me out of this, I promise I'm going to go to church every Sunday. I'm going to do three nice things a day. I'm going to to help my kindly neighbor carry her groceries inside. And what's interesting about that is that sends a message of how many of us live in that we trust God as far as long as he works out our circumstances. God, if you clear up these circumstances, if you lift the danger, if you solve my hardships, then I will trust you. But the other side of that truth is that we may not put words to this, but how we tend to live our lives is, but if you don't work my circumstances out, then I will not trust you. Then I don't believe in what you said. God, you promised me things, and it doesn't seem like you're delivering. God, this hardship doesn't seem like it's ending God, I lost this person or I lost this good thing in my life. I thought you were for me. And so again, when it comes to trust, what we need is we need a radical reinvention of trust. And often what we do is we put our trust in circumstances. But the reality, circumstances are ever-changing. A good friend of mine, a good mentor years ago put it to me this way, that we spend so much of our energy trying to define normal, and once we feel like we achieved it, normal has changed. And especially when it comes to the danger and hardships, we put so much energy trying to get through these trials, and once we do, it feels like we're immediately met with another one, a bigger trial, a bigger hardship, and we feel like we just figured out this one. Now I have to figure out this And so we put our faith in circumstances or we judge God based on our circumstances, but circumstances are ever changing. And so what is the radical reinvention? Well, we see it in the example of the believers in the church that when everything changed on them, they put their faith in the Messiah that never will. 
And so rather than trusting in our circumstances being worked out, we as Christ followers, we are called to put our trust in the never-changing character and person of Jesus. Again, going back to our scripture, the life they knew fell apart, but they trusted that the same Jesus they encountered in Jerusalem was the same Jesus they have now in the danger. The worldview of these race relations of the apostles was being challenged and it was dangerous, but they had to trust that the same Jesus that was the one that led us then is the same Jesus leading this now. Simon was called out. He entered this danger by his heart being revealed and he had a choice to make to trust in God or to trust in the stuff and he chose the stuff instead. See, the reality is when we look at the character of God in Scripture, it uses beautiful words such as creator, all-powerful, mighty, deliverer, forgiver, savior, Ultimately, the way the Bible describes Jesus and his character is big. And don't we need a big Messiah? Because when we're in the danger, when we're in the midst of the storm, it's hard to see anything but that, isn't it? If you're going through something like financial hardship, if you're going through job and career loss or changes, if you're going through relational conflict, with friends, family, children, parents, spouses, romantic hardships, if you're going through disease or sickness, loss of loved ones, if you're going through insecurity, if you're going through damaging thoughts, going through spiritual attack, what we need in that moment is a big, big savior. In the example of the early church, is that when everything fell apart, they rested in the truth that Messiah lived and Messiah was with them. And that's what they needed when everything else was changing. There in your note sheet, I put a quote that I hope is an encouragement for you today. God and the gospel are not defeated by human opposition. In fact, you can write in the word, nor spiritual opposition. God and the gospel are not defeated by human or spiritual opposition, however evil and intense. Think about what God does in his almighty power. He presents opportunities. I'm willing to bet that the early church in Jerusalem didn't sit in a meeting. Hey, how do we expand the message of Jesus? I know, intense, life-threatening persecution. <laughs> but it's what happened. And the church expanded because of where they placed their trust in a big Messiah. It doesn't mean that they fully understood what was going on. It doesn't mean that they didn't feel pain and heartbreak and hardship, but it meant that they knew God was bigger than all and they trusted in that. And so how do we become a people that trust in that? Well, we start to experience and discover more of God's character. Um, many years ago, I heard uh, one of my favorite preachers that I bring up a lot, a guy named Louis Giglio. He gave this tip that I want to pass along to you as well to learn more of God's character. He said, go through the Psalms in the Old Testament. And whenever you're reading a Psalm and it uses a word or a phrase to describe who God is, circle it. Write it down somewhere else and spend some time reflecting on that in your life. So for example, when a Psalmist says that God is my stronghold, Circle that and write that down and reflect on that. What does that mean in your life, in your current situation, that God is your stronghold? When the psalmist says that God is our deliverer, what does that mean in your life? What does that mean when the psalmist says that God is mighty? What does that mean? And through that, we will begin to expand our view of God's character, but our view of the size of the Lord himself. So that leads us ultimately to our final fill-in. Entering the danger charges us to act. Ultimately, if you look at these first two points, being in the danger requires a choice from us. Will we believe what's been revealed about our character? Will we believe that God is big and will we choose to trust him? Or will we walk away and choose to rely on ourselves or something else to help us? You know, Michael right now is in Israel leading a group of 50-some-odd people from Rocky Peak on a tour of the Holy Land. Two years ago, I got to go on that trip with him. And one of the experiences you have in Israel is you go into what's called the Caves of Adullam. 
which is one of the places that David hid for his life when Saul was after him. Now, even though this is a tourist, a tourist attraction, these caves are not like disney They are not nice five-star caves. They are what you think a cave could be. The majority of this cave network is only big enough for you to be on your hands and knees. It is dirty in there. There are animals in there. It smells odd in there. It is not comfortable because it is rocks. And there was a point when I finally got into a room that was big enough for me to sit and not be on my hands and knees. And I was waiting for some people to move ahead on the next, tu- on the next crawling tunnel ahead of me. And I uncomfortably leaned against a rock wall and I began reflecting on the life of David. See, David already had a messed up upbringing. His own father and his seven older brothers didn't care for him. He wasn't, quote, the man they wanted him to be. And so he got the lowly job of a shepherd. They were happy if he just spent his whole time in the fields and the woods and never really came back. When the prophet came looking for the sons of Jesse, they forgot about him or didn't think he was worth mentioning. And then David is anointed to become the king of Israel, the highest station in the land. David ends up getting what I would call a cushy job in the palace, working for the king himself. And then everything falls apart. The king wants his life. David runs, David flees. And when we read David's account in 1 Samuel, sometimes we think that it only took place over the course of a week or a month, but it's a highlight reel. See, David ran for his life for years. As I'm sitting in these caves, I'm realizing that David lived in these caves for years. And I began to ask myself, what must have that been like emotionally? God told you, you were going to be king. And here you are. This is now your life. And one thing I love about the Psalms is the Psalms are the ancient song, uh, the songbook of ancient Israel. But the Psalms are also a very honest look into the lives of people that follow the Lord. They have ups and they have downs. They're raw authenticity. And David isn't the only psalmist, but he wrote a lot of our Psalms. And in fact, many of the Psalms that David wrote were called laments, where he asked a very honest question, God, where are you? God, have you abandoned me? Have you forsaken me? God, do you want me to die? Are you not who I thought you would be? And what we see in the danger for David is that his character was coming to the surface and he needed to make a choice. Do I trust or do I retreat? My personal favorite psalm is the 29th psalm. And what David does in the 29th Psalm is at the beginning, he uses the word of scribe. And he basically says, come, let us worship God. And he goes on to describe why God is worthy of our worship. And I want to share that Psalm with you this morning. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And in in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood, talking about the biblical flood that destroyed the world. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. And so you see, David is painting a very big picture of God, is he not? That God, not his fist or his boot, but simply his voice is the master over all the destructive forces of nature. But I put it in your note sheet, and then David ends the psalm with this. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. And I remember the first time I read this, I wondered, where did that ending come from? I didn't see the connection. Why was he talking about God's power? And it goes to talk about God giving us strength and peace. And the more over the years I've gotten to reflect on this, the more I've realized the picture of David sitting in an area like this cave reflecting on his life and realizing he has a choice to make. My circumstances are horrible, and my circumstances may not get better anytime soon. But is God who I believe him to be 
And am I, going, am I going to choose to trust in that? And we see David's choice again in that verse, the Lord, the massive Lord, the Messiah, the Savior, Yahweh, gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. So as we head into a time of worship, I want to ask you, where are you at? What choice are you making? Are you taking steps to see yourself how you really are? Are you taking steps to see you how Jesus sees you? Are you choosing to trust in God even when that is the hardest choice to make? Are you experiencing more of God's character? Are you making a choice to hold on to the never-changing truth or to retreat into something smaller? And may David's words be an encouragement for you that we serve an almighty God. And when we have no strength and courage left, he will be our strength and courage for us. I've asked the worship team to sing a specific song, one that's very familiar to us at Rocky Peak, but it has a declaration that's probably one of my favorite declarations in all the worship music I've ever been exposed to, where it declares, God, you are who makes me brave. And don't we need that to be true in our lives? You are who makes me brave in the danger. I am not brave because of my own strength, because of my own talent. I am brave because of you. I am brave in the danger because I do not walk alone, but he who is truly fearless holds me and walks me when I am nothing but fear. When I feel like I've been in the mire and in the dirt for years, I am still brave because he, who has, he has not abandoned nor forsaken me. He is Messiah. He is all-powerful. And the most important promise I have is that he is with me for now and for all of eternity. Therefore, he makes me brave. And so as we sing that, let us declare that loudly as a church. He makes us brave. Let's pray. Father, you are strength. Father, I think of the words you told Joshua when you say, do not be afraid because I am with you. I think of what you told the disciples at the end of Matthew when you said, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. I think of what you told the apostles in the book of Acts that said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You are never to tread alone. And I don't know, like I said, everybody's story in here. I don't know what danger they're in and what they're facing. But I do know that Messiah lives. The Messiah is present. The Messiah is with us. And because of that, we will find strength in the overflow of his. As we sing this, Lord, let this come from the deepest part of our souls. Let us declare this, that Jesus, you make us brave. And let us declare that because we believe that. In your son's name, we all loudly said, amen. Let's stand and sing together. But you know what makes it? But you know what makes that declaration spectacular? Is that it's true. We're not simply saying these words, but we're declaring that Jesus is risen. Jesus is Messiah. And because of Jesus, we do not enter the danger alone. We do not face the danger alone. But we have the almighty creator with us, in us, who is there in those trials. And because of that, we can be brave. Amen? So as we leave this place this morning, wherever you are, if you feel like you're at the end of your rope, or feel like things are going well wherever you are, rest in that truth. Hey, if you'd like to pray with somebody before you leave this place, over to my right along that wall is amazing, some amazing men and women for our prayer ministry. They're wearing these badges to identify themselves. They would love to pray with you. They would love to pray with you before you leave this place. Hey, one special note too, if you, if, especially if you've got uh, small kids or if you're heading down to the lower lawn for anything, just keep an eye out because it's hot. And so hot brings out fun little critters of living in the canyon. So keep an eye out, but you might make some new friends. Hey, next week, I say this every time because it's true. You gotta be here. 
invite a friend to be here. One, Pastor Michael is going to be back, and he will have just gotten back from Israel and be crazy jet-lagged, so it's going to be entertaining. But secondly, Luke is going to continue Philip's account. And this is one of my personal favorite accounts in the entire New Testament, that as he's heading down the south on the way to Egypt, Luke is going to encounter an Ethiopian who is reading from the book of Isaiah, these prophecies of this coming Messiah. And he turns to Philip and says, excuse me, do you know who this is talking about? And in my paraphrase, Philip responds, heck yes. Let me tell you about the Messiah. So we'll see you then. Have a good week.